Okay, everyone, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Live in West Texas podcast, and we made it! It is November 5th as we are recording this, and we made it past Election Day. I hate to say that too much, I don't want to sound like Ginger Nelson, but we did make it past Election Day, and we were talking about doing this uh, the day after the election, We really didn't know a result on the big race, of course. Uh, This is our election roundup. We didn't know a a result on the big race, and I don't know that we still have a result on that, but we're still going to talk about all the races. So, uh, we have a lot of races to get through here on this episode, and we're going to be talking about the results and providing some analysis and some points of view on it. So, my guests here with us uh, are Matt Stringer. He is a writer and a columnist for Lone Star Voice, so uh, he is an expert on a lot of our state stuff. I call him one of the great legal minds of this generation. Um, also joining us, we have Jason Fogelsong. He is a Republican and conservative activist in Amarillo, and Noah Dawson. He is a columnist for the Amarillo Pioneer. Okay, gentlemen, we appreciate having all three of you on here. And uh, we're going to talk about the national election in just a moment. We're going to talk about our local elections. Before we get started, let's start talking about our state elections some. And I want uh, Matt to go ahead and take a lead on this. Uh, We're going to go through some individual races here. But overall, it was a pretty good night for Republicans, it seems like. So tell us uh, what you think about the results and what are some things that people need to know. Well, that's right, Thomas. It was a very good night for Republicans in Texas. and uh, by the way, I'm uh, honored to be joining you all on the podcast for the first time. Um, it wouldn't be unfair to describe election night in Texas as a red wave. Um, even though Republicans were largely outspent, even in Texas by Democrats, by large percentages, uh, Republicans swept all the statewide offices. Uh, in, including the presidential election uh, for the state of Texas. Um, the Republicans also held control of the Texas legislature um, in that we didn't hardly lose any, any seats in the Texas House, uh, and I think we lost one seat in the Texas Senate. Uh, but overall, a very good night, uh, considering which side spent how much and uh, the ultimate results. So it was a really expensive cycle in Texas. And uh, one race that a lot of people were watching really closely uh, was the race for Texas Railroad Commissioner. We had the incumbent Ryan Sitton. He lost his primary. He had an underfunded opponent who won the primary, still went into the general. And uh, I guess for you know comparison's sake uh, in this election he was still underfunded compared to his democratic opponent uh krista castaneda they threw a lot of money behind castaneda and jim wright still performed very well in that race that's right jim wright ultimately raised uh and spent roughly 1.1 million dollars uh, in his election uh and he kind of came out of nowhere uh during the during the the primaries uh, it was a it was a major upset in unseating an incumbent railroad commission commissioner of course it was kind of odd that uh, Sitton really didn't he he kind of sat on his war chest and really didn't mobilize things of course i don't think he really realized he was in trouble until it was too late uh but it was a huge upset to win that primary and then he had to do some pretty serious fundraising, getting ready for the November election. And of course, nationally, Democrats—they uh, smelled blood. Uh, they thought that we had—they had a potential to pick up a statewide office that was a major office, not just Texas and nationally, but on a global scale. The Railroad Commission plays an important role in regulating oil and ga- the oil and gas industry. Uh, and cumulatively, they they poured about, uh, I believe it was $4.5 million in behind the Democrat challenger, Krista Castaneda, um, and including $2.5 million of that, or $2.6 million of that, was uh, direct contributions from uh, Michael Bloomberg, the uh, former mayor of New York and former presidential candidate and uh, uh, New York billionaire. Um, all that being said, uh, even though uh, Wright was outspent many times 
uh, he still managed to pull out a uh, 53% win. Uh, he pulled 5.8 million votes uh, to Castaneda's 4.7 million. So it was overall a very good night for Republicans, including uh, keeping control of all of the seats that were up on the state's two highest courts, keeping control of Texas legislature, and like you said, not losing hardly any seats. I think one Republican state representative was unseated, but then another seat was actually won by Republicans in the yes. state house. Pretty much any time a Republican, like I believe Sarah Davis, um, state representative Sarah Davis, a, a, a Republican lawmaker from the Houston area, uh, she lost to a Democrat challenger, but then we were able to pick up other seats. And so really the balance of the Texas House didn't change much. It has been retained in, in Republican control. And, and right now there's a speakership race going on amongst uh, the Republicans um, with a state representative, Dade Whalen, uh says he has locked up enough votes to a majority to be the next uh, speaker. Uh, and that's kind of a whole another ongoing saga conversation. Uh, but uh, real quick, I wanted to pull back and, and kind of focus on some of these interesting races that we saw, uh, just to highlight. Um, in the state of Texas, uh, we have 36 congressional seats. Uh, 22 of those after the election are Republican. Uh, we have 13 Democrats. Um a very interesting race to watch was the seat held by incumbent Congressman Chip Roy, that's sort of the Central Hill Country area. Uh, there you saw challenger, Democrat challenger Wendy Davis come into that race and spend, I, I believe last number I saw was somewhere around $14 million, just way outspent Chip Roy on that race, really trying hard to flip that seat. Uh, at the end of the day, Chip Roy pulled away. 233, a little over 233,000 votes to her 203, uh, uh, just not even close. And, and um, once again, we saw that just lopsided on the money, uh, but with the reverse effect at the polls that um, I guess it just goes to uh, show that um, some seats cannot be bought. Well, another race that people were watching, I know, was District 23, and it looks like that one's going to stay Republican, right? Yes, that was another very interesting race. As a matter of fact, there's been quite a cover bit of coverage about border counties along the state of Texas and, you know, heavily Hispanic areas, overwhelmingly those demographics going in favor of Trump. Uh, and Senate dist or uh, Congressional District 23, which largely follows the, uh, the 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 border, it runs all the way from Brewster County, Alpine, all the way down uh, Uvalde, picks up a little bit of South San Antonio, uh, all along that area. It's, it's a massive district. Uh, the incumbent was uh, Congressman Will Hurd. Historically, that race, that that district, is just always a a a narrow win regardless of the primary the general you know we're talking out of you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of votes cast it always ends up just being this nail biter down to a thousand votes or that sort of thing uh republican challenger tony gonzalez uh, he broke that trend uh facing off against democrat gina ortiz jones who once again spent more money than uh than gonzalez in the race uh, he was able to pull off a huge win with 147,000 votes to Gina Ortiz-Jones, 135,000. Uh, so it's a, a solid over 10,000 vote lead, nearly a little over 12,000 votes, um, and uh, kind of broke that trend where, we, where we'd see that district be won by hundreds uh, of votes, if not, you know, typically falls around a thousand somewhere. As a matter of fact, Gonzalez won the primary. Uh, it was somewhere around 50 votes, I believe, uh, after the recount was all said and done that they just couldn't break. Um, and so he broke that. Uh, he, he came out with a narrow win in the primary, but had a huge victory in going into the November general election. Mm hmm. And that's really interesting, you know, considering the fact that it was such a nasty primary and it was so close and 
he didn't seem to yeah. have any trouble consolidating support at the end of the day. So that is very yeah, interesting. That's, that's exactly right. That is very that is very that is a very good observation. So tell me, uh, for anyone listening to this, the speakers race, it's about a done deal now, is that right? Well, Representative Whalen, he says that it's a done deal. But um, last I saw, he was facing challenger Trent Ashby uh, for the for the speakership, even though he said he had enough to outright win it. Ashby said he was going to take it to the Republican caucus. And then Ashby withdrew in through and behind Representative Jeannie Morrison. And then uh, earlier today... I saw where Representative Jeannie Morrison has apparently withdrew her bid for the speakership. I'm not aware of any public challengers, but I have spoken to a number of state representatives who still haven't committed to anybody, and they're telling me that there are challengers uh, out there who may emerge soon just in order to see uh, the the race proceed to the Republican caucus meeting in December and follow the, the rules for the Republican Party under the Republican Party platform, the Republican caucus bylaws, uh, to select a speaker. Very interesting. So there's a lot to discuss, and I guess there's going to be a lot more to unpack on that as things continue forward. Uh, but either way, it's it's very interesting. So Matt, I know that you're a busy guy. Can you hang out with us a little bit to talk about the presidential race, or do you have to split? I'll give you a couple of minutes on that. Why not? <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about the presidential race, because I know that uh, Jason Fogelsong has lots of opinions about this. <laughs> so I'll, yeah. I'll let Jason take it first. Uh, right now, if you're looking, it, I guess it depends on where you're looking as far as how the election stands uh, right now as we are recording this the Associated Press has Joe Biden up 264 electoral votes to President Trump's 214 electoral votes and it looks like we still have outstanding counts in Alaska but I think Alaska is pretty much trending toward Trump at this point Um, Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania right now as we record this, as we speak, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, all leaning Trump, and Nevada is leaning Biden. But there's a dispute about the count in Arizona, so, uh, and I guess in other states too. So, it's it's a really strange situation. So, Jason, tee us up. Where are we at, and what do you think about this? Uh, I've been looking at this for a couple of days and watching the different maps. And I've been looking at CNNs, which is a little bit different from the one that you cited. And it looks like, according to CNN, Georgia is like 49.4 to 49.4. Like They're very, very close, razor-thin margins all over the place. And that seems to be a trend on any any source that you can look at, or Fox or other independent sites. But I, there's also lots of evidence coming out And I don't know um, how many of those articles you've read or if you look at the same places I do, but there's a lot of people that are are extremely suspicious of fraud, and I'm one of them, especially since I shared um, the the last time I was able to access my Facebook account, I had shared a story from Texas Scorecard about voter fraud in Harris County and a video from Project Veritas covering voter fraud in San Antonio, I believe in Bear County. And then I was locked out of my Facebook account right before the election. And then I kept seeing headlines on conservative media showing uh, voter fraud Florida and I don't know if they said Georgia, but there's concerns in Pennsylvania. There's concerns in Detroit video of people wheeling things into into ballot counting centers in the middle of the night when they shouldn't be after counting has stopped. Reports of dead people voting in New York City and in Detroit. I, I think there's rampant voter fraud happening, and I'm 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 not even sure how you prosecute that. But the fact that the president has been so calm about it, I I wonder maybe if, as usual, he doesn't know something that I don't, which isn't hard to know something that I don't. But you know what I mean. 
I wonder, I wonder if this is being investigated by the Department of Justice or, or anything else. It, it's just, it's, it's very strange. And then some of the numbers don't match. Like it looks like in the middle of the night, Wisconsin and Michigan shot up in the middle of the night, unless I'm misunderstanding what I was reading. Like the numbers changed in the middle of the night when there shouldn't have been a change to push Biden over the edge. And then some of the articles, I believe Red State or one of the or one of those associated sites was carrying an article showing that they're looking at it saying, well, it's kind of strange how Biden is this far ahead, but down ballot, it's like a bloodbath for Democrats. It's almost as if it's almost as if they're running through a bunch of presidential ballots without filling out the down ballot candidates, which any true Democrat or Republican voter, I mean, probably isn't going to do that. It, just, it looks really shady to me. Okay, so Matt, fill us in on what you know. What's happening with this whole count, and who's going to be the next president of the United States or be reelected president of the United States? I'm glad you asked, Thomas. Um, not to toot my own horn or anything, but I'm a bit of an expert on uh, the electoral college and presidential election process. Oh, I uh, and I guess the I. Best- I want to cut in and just tell everyone Matt Stringer is actually going to be one of the electors for the state of Texas this year for President Trump. Uh, I have the honor of serving the people of Texas's 11th congressional district as their representative on the Electoral College. Uh, And this is my second time serving. I helped put President Trump over the top and into the White House originally in 2016. Uh, And it's always been a system that's fascinated me and something that I've always loved studying all of the relevant constitutional law and statutory law pertaining to the Electoral College. Uh, so let me let me throw this out there. There's Right now, there's a number of different directions that this election can go. Um, one, these states could have press conferences and announce that, um, you know, President Trump has won Arizona and hold on to Georgia, and he just outright wins, and that would give him probably 271. Um, Or they could announce that Arizona goes for Biden. Um, And then Trump could file, keep keep pushing the litigation, and through the litigation and criminal investigations with the DOJ, if he can articulate a substantial, provable case of voter fraud, and he can prove that it is impossible to correctly ascertain the popular vote winner, there is actually a remedy for that contemplated in the Constitution and in federal law. And as far as I'm aware, pretty much every state constitution and election codes are equivalent uh, contemplated. I'll give Texas as a classic example. Um, under under our statutes and state constitution, if if we hold an election for presidential electors in November and something happens where we cannot ascertain whose slate of elector candidates won the November popular vote election, uh, then at a certain time, uh, if if uh, I'm thinking it's around the first week of December, I think it's December 4th, but don't quote me on that. I, I, I've slept since I've last read the statute. There's a hard cutoff date uh, where if they can't absolutely ascertain who it is, uh, then the state legislature must call a special session and appoint a slate of electors to represent that state. Um, Pretty much you can guarantee that if it's a Republican-controlled legislature in both houses, your Republican slate of electors are most likely going to get appointed. In the case of Arizona, I believe Republicans control both the Republican State House of Representatives and the upper chamber, the Senate. Uh, and so I can only assume that if it if that happened in Arizona, uh, Republican electors could actually get appointed. Uh, it's been a very long time since that's happened. The last time things actually came close to a state legislature contemplating outright appointing the electors was in 2000 with the famous Bush v. Gore election, uh, where there were numerous court challenges over the procedures that uh, Florida was going by on counting the ballots. They were having a very difficult time ascertaining the who won the popular vote. Ultimately, 
they asked the Supreme Court to make a decision on who the popular vote winner was, and the Supreme Court ruled on that with the famous Bush v. Gore uh, decision. And, and so with the Supreme Court's decision, uh, you essentially had an unprecedented court-ordered ascertainment of who the popular vote winner was. Uh, and the corresponding slate of electors was declared elected. Um, while it was leading up for the court's decision, uh, I think it was Governor Jeb Bush at the time, he was preparing to call a special session of the Florida State Legislature, and um, if, if no one was ascertained at the hard stop deadline, they were planning on outright appointing the electors. Um, so that's, that's, that's very much a possibility. Uh, I, I believe in this race, uh, or uh, instead of having to outright appoint one, it could be just like the, the same process in the Bush v. Gore Supreme Court uh, ruling. If, if the Trump campaign puts together a lawsuit and, and challenges uh, the legality of certain ballots, finds uh, fraudulent ones, or finds that the elections process wasn't adhered to, or finds unqualified ballots and gets enough strict uh, uh, ballots uh, struck from the margins, uh, they could get a court order flipping the election results. Um, so there's a number of different ways things could go down in Arizona or Nevada. With with Nevada, if all the other states that are currently in Trump's favor hold out, uh, he would end up with 271 electors, uh, which is uh, two votes more than needed to win. Or with Arizona and New Mexico, could end up with, I believe, 276. Um, so... Uh, there's a lot of different routes that this election can go by both the combination of the campaign filing lawsuits plus state and federal authorities doing whatever voter fraud investigations. Um, and then ultimately, uh, we won't know what direction those end up going uh, once the states finally finish uh, this never-ending saga of counting and, and actually attempt to announce a winner. Well, you know, there's so much to talk about on this presidential race, but I want to ask uh, Noah about this since he's with us. I'm sure you watched the polls. I know that we discussed this some on election night uh, because you were at the same event that I was on election night. Um, the polls were totally wrong again. So tell us, um, what is your reaction to that? Well, uh, I think it kind of ties the two things we've been talking about tonight together. Uh, it has to do with the fact that the Democrats, uh, I think really it comes down to a uh, large, and it's not the only factor, but one of the big factors is the Democrats uh, spent a lot of money in Texas and got basically no returns with spending that money. And it's because they were really confident in what these predictions were saying would happen uh, in the national race. But those predictions, I think a lot of those predictions had in mind, especially the ones that were earlier in the cycle, those predictions had in mind the idea that Democrats would use these resources on the swing states and the states that they needed to flip and the states that they actually had a really good chance of flipping, not on states where they had a really far-flung, uh, uh, very uh, very hard to predict chance of flipping like Texas, uh, real reaches like Texas. But uh, the Democrats saw that uh, they would have the national race in the bag, and so they uh, spent a bunch of resources on Texas without realizing that the reason why those predictions seem to be in the bag is because they the people who are predicting, I think a lot of them thought that the Democrats would actually spend it on the areas where they needed it for the national race. And so now you see all these uh, races where the Democrats are, where Joe Biden is needing to win. Uh, and it's by such tiny margins for the ones that he's hoping to win right now to uh, get over the threshold. Now, uh, and like, I don't know if the cases of a, uh, alleged fraud, if the courts will deem that they'll have merit or not. But the simple fact is, is uh, the Democrats, uh, I, I personally, I might be wrong, but I think that the Democrats could have made this easier on themselves by spending money 
in actual swing stakes and the stakes that they needed to pick up and done that instead of states like Texas, where it was going to be a long shot anyways for them to do anything. And it turned out that it was an even longer shot than they expected with getting basically no returns on that investment. And so uh, I think that they should have learned a similar lesson from 2016 when, uh, and this is from uh, commentators on both the left and right, they seem to agree that a big reason why Hillary lost in 2016 is because she didn't campaign in the states that she needed to campaign in. She uh, did not campaign in the Midwest. Uh, Joe Biden seemed to learn from that part of it, doing more campaigning in the Midwest than she did. But overall, uh, especially uh, big donors like Bloomberg, focusing on states like Texas, uh, focusing states back like Florida, which uh, I'll be honest, I don't think Florida really is that much of a swing state anymore. Uh, Republicans uh, seem to have learned how to win in Florida. Uh, but the Democrats, they really pushed hard on those few states that they thought they could make a long shot uh, victory sweep in. And they failed, and it uh, went against the predictions. It's kind of like a, a – I know I sometimes reference this uh, uh, too much, but uh, if anyone's read uh, Foundation by Asimov, a big theme of that uh, a real old sci-fi novel is uh, predictions only work uh, if you assume that the people that are acting – don't know what the prediction is, or else the prediction uh, won't turn out like that. And so they saw the prediction that they were going to win big, and so they got overconfident and tried to spend in states like Texas, tried to spend too much in states like Florida, and now they're hoping to get these tiny margins in a few swing states that the predictions were saying they would easily win. Uh, Jason, I want to ask you this. You know, I think there was a lot of wishful thinking that Democrats had after Beto O'Rourke uh, had a relatively close margin against Ted Cruz in 2018 in Texas. Do you think that the Democrats spending in Texas was influenced too much by wishful thinking based on the 2018 result? I kind of think so. Um and I, I'm not one of the people that ever thought that O'Rourke had any kind of charisma. I, I found him to be an obnoxious person. I know a lot of people really liked him as a candidate, but I don't see, I mean, uh, Cornyn, in my opinion, is very weak compared to Ted Cruz, but Hagar was also a very weak candidate compared to O'Rourke. So I, I, I really do think that they wasted a lot of money. They should have spent it elsewhere. And, and the idea that Texas is just going to flip blue, I know the the demographic changes and trends is is you know that's their fantasy that it'll it'll turn blue and become a liberal stronghold but i really think that's just a fantasy i think the i think the numbers that president trump showed in the in the black and latino voting or voting voter turnout is is showing that there's there's some people that are waking up to the lies that the democrats are selling and i i really think they just need to you know try somewhere else it certainly is a interesting thing uh to say the least but overall i think we're still gonna have a little bit of time to wait till we find out what actually is going to happen with the presidential election uh so matt do you want to hang out with us and talk about the local elections or do you need to go well unfortunately i have to i'll have to hop off here but um I'd love, I'd love to be able to hang around with y'all, but um, uh, it's, it's always a good opportunity to sit down and uh, talk politics and uh, cover these events that have been going on the past few days. Well, we really do appreciate it, and I'm sure, you know, maybe if President Trump gets reelected and we have to talk about the electors who put him there, we may have to have a full-length episode with Matt Stringer. Um, yes. <laughs> i'll probably have some pretty serious news for you on that end here in the coming days thomas so stay tuned well we'll have you back on matt we appreciate you being with us okay my pleasure thomas all right thank you matt okay
So let's talk about the local election here in Amarillo, Texas. We had three propositions on the ballot this year, and propositions A, B, and C, those were the three on the ballot. Proposition A would have funded a $275 million bond, which would have been most of a $319 million spending package for various downtown projects. Uh, and in addition to that, we had Proposition B, which would have extended the terms of the Emerald City Council by two years apiece. If you want to hear all the problems with Proposition B, I think we did a full-length episode on that <laughs> a few months ago. The final proposition is Proposition C, which cuts the Emerald City Council's annual meeting calendar in half each year. So there's a lot to talk about on those. It is worth noting Proposition A went down, I believe, by 24 points. Do either one of you gentlemen have the exact number in front of you? I want to think it was 62 to 38. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's right, right. right here. Okay. Uh, to be exactly precise, it was 61.76 to 38.24. Do you have a total on how many votes were cast in that election? Well, that is one interesting thing. As far as I can tell from the county ones, uh, from the county reporting, uh, it's about just under 70,000. Uh, see, Prop A had uh, 68,972. I've seen some other outlets that uh, that have larger turnout numbers, but uh, it has the same percentages. I don't know where those numbers are coming from. Well, I know that there were some errors. I know that at one point, what was it like? Uh, one of the TV stations was showing that one of the propositions was passing 96 to 4 or something. <laughs> you know, so I think there were some incorrect numbers being uh, entered into the system by the stations. And, you know, that goes back to how much can you trust the local news networks in Amarillo? But we won't get into that. But either way, Proposition A went down. 62 to 38, I believe Proposition B for the extended terms went down 52 to 48. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, 52 to 48. Yeah, uh, yeah 51.63 to 48.37. Again, uh, if you're looking for the slightly more exact. And how many were cast per option in that one? See, uh, Per option on that one, it was uh, 32,924 and uh, 35,139 against. Okay, so roughly 3,000 separating? Yeah. Okay, so Proposition B went down and then Proposition... Probably, oh, go ahead. Uh, probably actually closer, close, a bit closer, I think, to 2,000... Uh, yeah, a bit close to 2,000 on those because uh, it was nearly uh, 33,000 for and uh, about 35,000 against. Oh, okay. So okay. Uh, just over 2,000. Okay, so just over 2,000. What you're saying, though, that was a much larger margin than, what, the 700 voters who decided the ballpark election in 2015? Yep, uh, it was close, but nowhere near as close as that one was. Okay, so... Actually, I think what's interesting is both had roughly the same percentages. I think it was 52-48 on the ballpark, too, but it was uh, interesting to note that. Finally, Proposition C, it did pass, and it was, I think, around 55-45, to 56-44, to 44, somewhere in there. Uh, 56.94 and uh, 43.1 against. Okay, so uh, Proposition C passed. I think most people feel like that was probably the least egregious of the three but there were still some issues with that one of the complaints we heard immediately from people who deal with the city as far as zonings uh different kinds of planning ordinances are concerned is now the time frame for getting a zoning ordinance approved just doubled instead of taking two weeks it can now take a month or more depending on how the city sets it up. And I know one of the problems Noah also had with Proposition C was the fact that it could be the kind of situation where the city council could just stop meeting for several weeks, and then as long as they do the 26 meetings, then they're still within the boundaries of the city charter. 
Either way, it's passed. Proposition A and B went down, and in my personal opinion, thank the Lord that Proposition B went down. But before we get into all that, I know Noah's going to have so much to say about this. Jason Fogelsong, you were part of the campaign against the props as well as Noah. Give us your reaction to it. What do you think about the result we got on Tuesday night? I'm pretty happy with it. I think the proposition A is that's enough of a enough of a victory to say that it was a rebuke against tax uh, against increasing taxes. And then I mean, the other one was a little bit closer, which I think shows that maybe the city government's not quite as popular as they'd like to believe they are. Because people didn't want to give them the give them the chance to extend their terms. But I'm I'm really happy about the tax increase getting shot down. I mean that was just that's just ridiculous right now. As as for Prop C, I mean, I care, but at the same time, it's I don't expect much from those people. I mean, from from what I've seen since I've lived here, the city government has done everything it can to, to limit and shut down citizen interaction anyway. So I'm not surprised by any of that that they're that they're going to manage to pull that off. I'm just disappointed. Well, you know, one of the things that's so interesting is Proposition B. You know, they had said, oh, you know, we're not going to try to push extended terms. That was taken out of context. And they did it anyway, and voters shut that down. So I'm really happy with that. And then Proposition A, of course, the bond went down. There are still claims being made about misinformation, tilting the election, and things like that. Noah, I want your full reaction in just a moment but give us your reaction to that misinformation claim that's being made by some of the supporters of proposition a now that the measure has been defeated by such a healthy margin as we saw on tuesday you know it's another example in my opinion of a very much recurring theme in the the way that these uh city leaders feel about the voters in amarillo because they don't seem to trust the voters in Amarillo. They think that the voters in Amarillo were fooled by what they, by what they are calling misinformation, which, number one, it's not misinformation. It would have been a 39% increase in the city's property tax rate as of the time that it was placed on the ballot. There is no way to dispute that. It's how math works. But let's even, let's pretend Let's pretend for a moment that it was misinformation, which, again, it was not. That means that they are thinking that the people in Amarillo who are voting do not know how to see through misinformation. They are pretending that the people of Amarillo are not competent enough to be able to elect uh, their leaders, not to be able to decide what policy of the city should be. And, And frankly, I think that that speaks to the arrogance of the leaders of our city thinking that that's how these kind of things work and having that kind of mindset towards the voters. Uh, it's, it's really kind of sad that they feel that way. Uh, but again, it was not misinformation. They voted against it because it was a bad deal. And that was pretty self-evident whenever you read the plan and you see that it includes, Oh, uh, there's going to be a new city hall, Oh, it's going to, even whenever you just take the part that's the arena, it's going to cost more than Lubbock's does, even when adjusting for inflation, uh, even though it is a significantly smaller arena. Why would any voter see those numbers? Why would any voter see that it's going to be the largest tax increase in Amarillo history? Why would they vote for it? Well, it is interesting for certain. Give us your reaction, though, to the result we saw on Tuesday night, Propositions A and B going down, and then Proposition C passing. Proposition A, like I said, it was a bad deal. Uh, The voters were able to see that. It was pretty self-evident. And so just the obviousness of how bad of a deal it was led to it being defeated by such a wide margin. Uh, It's like the... It's a, it's pretty comparable in some ways to the margins that uh, the city council members have been elected by whenever they've claimed to have a very strong mandate. If uh, if that means that they had a pretty strong mandate, having those kind of margins in a 
May elections, which have very small numbers of turnout, having these kinds of margins in an election where there is such a large turnout shows that there is a mandate that this is not a plan that the voters are willing to accept and the voters didn't accept it because, again, I know I keep saying this, I've said this ad nauseum, but it's a bad plan. But Prop C, uh, it was a bit closer, but at the same time, uh, people don't want a bad plan and they don't want to give less accountability to the kind of politicians who put these bad plans before the voters. Uh, and so uh, it was defeated, uh, although it was by pretty, it, it was by a significantly smaller margin than Prop A was defeated. Although that, I think, goes into some of the reason why Prop C was uh actually passed. And a part of that, a big part of both of those is uh, the wording that is used on the ballot, where it does not clearly state on the ballot exactly what is changing. Uh, because both of those, in order to know what is changing on it, you have to also know what the language already is in the existing city charter. And uh, those kind of minutiae aren't necessarily uh, widely known public information. There are plenty of people, and most voters, I think, do know that we have two-year terms. But also, uh, and so that's uh, also, I think, why it failed is because people realized they could see through uh, saying uh, that those can be four-year staggered terms, even though it doesn't explicitly say it on the ballot. That means that it's uh, term extensions. Uh, with Prop C, though, uh, it gets even more muddied uh, with the way that it's worded. It doesn't make it very clear on the ballot language that it is cutting the number of meetings. So that's, I think, part of the reason why Prop C actually was passed. I think there's also the fact that uh, for similar reasons to why uh, people or, or why people were against Prop B, because they wanted to hold politicians accountable and didn't want politicians, uh, uh, to put it bluntly, messing stuff up as much. I think that uh, there is a certain logic in supporting Prop C where they're not meeting as often, meaning that they can't do as much and they can't uh, make as many mistakes as they otherwise would have. Uh, I, again, uh, of course, think that it comes down to it gives the people fewer chances to actually show up and speak before their elected representatives in person. And it also uh, limits the number of chances for things like rezoning. So it also has that economic impact. But I can see uh, both that Prop C was not worded very clearly and that there could be an argument for it uh, in terms of wanting uh, harm reduction in the city, having uh, fewer opportunities for government to step in and do something uh, potentially bad for the city. Although, uh, again, and while that was a, it did pass by a large enough margin that I wouldn't call it close, it also didn't pass by nearly the margin that Prop A passed, or that Prop A was failed by. And so those are kind of my thoughts on uh, Props B and C and uh, kind of the difference between them. And, uh, about how the ballot language really, uh, I think, can change it. Because if you were just to ask people uh, more bluntly, uh, do you think that there should be fewer public meetings, uh, then I'm not so sure that it would have uh, passed. Uh, and if uh, Prop B was worded differently, where it was uh, made very explicitly clear that these are term extensions, I don't know if the margins would have been that close. I want to ask you about this. I, I'm going to throw this to Jason first, and then I'm going to give it to Noah. One thing that made me, I guess, kind of chuckle about the misinformation claim is the misinformation claim that the uh, Build for Amarillo campaign, or Build Amarillo pack, rather, sorry, makes is they're saying, oh, there's all this misinformation, that's why it failed. But one of the things they said throughout the campaign was that if we did not pass Proposition A, the WRCA rodeo was going to leave Amarillo. It was just going to leave. We were never going to see it again. Well, they just came out today, the WRCA did, and announced that they're staying in Amarillo for another year. So, misinformation, anyone? Jason, what do you think about that whole thing with the misinformation claim and the WRCA issue? 
That is pretty funny. And I believe we do have a facility that can house the rodeo here or else we wouldn't be having the rodeo. But I, it's also kind of telling going back to Noah's point about how arrogant the uh, city government is about what they think of our voters. It's, it's really an issue at all levels of politics and it's a bipartisan issue too, but the idea of somebody not, of not liking something and then just pointing the finger and screeching fake news. I mean, that's that's a massive problem in this country. And, and just because they didn't like our numbers, you can't dispute the math. You can't just say it's misinformation and hope it goes away. And then, obviously, the city council and the mayor, they don't control the rodeo. So who are they to say what the rodeo is going to do? The rodeo is it's an, an independent entity. It could leave tomorrow after it said it was going to stay today. Who knows? It's just kind of ridiculous that they tried to hold that over our heads as a threat. Now, I remember seeing somewhere else that mayor had stated that property taxes would go up anyway, even if we didn't vote for this, which makes me wonder if that was some kind of a threat or if maybe something has already been bought and paid for without our consent. There's lots of ways you can interpret that. And if I go too far, then I might be guilty of misinformation. Oh, well, remember, they already bought the property, or at least... At the very least, they made an agreement to buy the property for the new city hall. That was in the bond. Oh. So. Well, I, I guess they'd all better start getting some part-time jobs then. Well, my question on that is, are they going to do certificates of obligation and build the new city hall anyway? I mean, that's a, that's a question worth asking, I think. So, Noah, what do you think about the WRC? It's probably issue? something else they'll lie about. Yeah, yeah. As far as uh, the rodeo goes, uh, it, it's like I said before, uh, it, it seems to me like a big part of the whole thing was public posturing on part of the rodeo. Uh, uh, not, not saying necessarily that the rodeo's intentions were bad, but uh, I, I do think that maybe they would have liked to have a nicer venue, and so they... Uh, worked with the Prop A uh, to convince voters that they were maybe going to be leaving. But it turns out that uh, it's not, not that uh, it was an ultimatum that they were going to leave if Prop A failed. And then there's also the fact, though, that even uh, looking to the future, uh, even if they decide eventually that our venue is not good enough, the deal in Prop A, the way that it uh, was put together, uh, still, whenever they do eventually uh, consider moving again, if they do that, Prop A, I don't think that it would be uh, as appealing as some of the other places that they could be looking to move to. So uh, even if it really was an ultimatum uh, that they were going to leave because our venue isn't up to their standards, well, then uh, Prop A probably wouldn't be up to those standards either. So it's just misinformation all around, uh, misleading voters about uh, what actually the impact of this is going to be. I've seen people saying uh, that, uh, oh, we uh, lost Prop A. That means that uh, there's going to be a huge economic crisis in Amarillo uh, because uh, we're going to lose out on so much and that Prop A was vital to the economic future of the city. And we're already seeing those signs with the rodeo announcing they're going to be staying here. That all of that hysteria is pretty baseless. Uh, the, and another thing to bring up to these people, bring up these uh, ideas of economic hysteria, in addition to the fact that we're actually not probably going to be losing what they say we're going to be losing. Another fact is, is, Amarillo is not the civic center. Amarillo is not just downtown. There's a lot more to this city than just a few blocks that uh, most people in the city rarely ever visit. That's not what our economy is centered around. So let's ask the question everyone's thinking. What's going to happen in May? Do the May elections change at all as a result of what happened on Tuesday night? Does this mean that some incumbents are not going to run again based on what happened on Tuesday night? Because I view what happened on Tuesday night much like a referendum on the city council, right? Because it was a referendum on do you want to give them longer terms and do you want to trust them 
with $319 million. Because let's just be honest, it was a $319 million issue because you were going to get the rest of it out of CEOs and other places. So it was a referendum on the city council in a lot of ways. So does it change the May election at all, Jason? I hope so. I mean, I don't, I don't want to speak for anyone and say that they're not going to run again, because of course, if, if they believe they deserve to be reelected, they should run again and let the voters decide. Personally, I don't believe any of them deserve to be reelected, but the voters will speak. And I would really like to see, um, how did she put it? I'd like to see them flip the entire council in one go. Flip the entire boat I, I, again. I just, with the yeah, I I really think that the way that they've handled things and the way they've they've voted to raise taxes and all of this stuff surrounding these propositions, I just don't feel like these people have the best interests of our city at heart. And we have a lot of uh, speaking of economic crisis, talking about the rodeo, we have a much more pressing economic crisis on our hands with with people's businesses suffering and being shut down, and and it's just very tone deaf to me to ask for that kind of money out of out of a out of a significant pop poor part part of our population that's lower income struggling or out of work. Absolutely. So and I plan to beat that drum all the way into May. <laughs> are we hearing Jason Fogel song for mayor? No, I'm I'm probably not running for any of the any of the city offices. I I don't know about any of that, but probably not. So Noah, what do you think? I definitely think it was a much needed referendum on our uh, city council and our mayor. Uh, it's something that I've written about. I may have talked about it in uh, previous podcasts as well. Uh, that uh, the city, they know that, uh, especially when it comes to the May elections, we have very little turnout and that there is, uh, to be blunt, there is a large degree of apathy towards these local issues. And so it seems like one of the patterns that they've done is they have continuously uh, gone further and further with their plans and uh, seeing how far they can go, essentially, with these kind of things. And I think we may have just discovered the breaking point, the point in which the city, the people of the city are realizing that. You know, this isn't something to just be apathetic about. This is something to be angry about. And they've seen that uh, the city is willing to try and ask for a nearly 40% increase in city property taxes in the middle of a recession. They realize that this city council, uh, I, I can't pretend to know their intentions, but they realize that the city council's effects, that what the policies they're trying to push for are not in the best interests of the people of this city. Again, I can't pretend to know uh, their intentions. I'm not going to speculate on that, but the actions, the action of trying to push for such a huge tax increase for a downtown project in this kind of economy, that shows to the people how tone deaf they are. And this election with Prop A, losing by such a wide margin, losing by a margin that is similar to what city council was elected by, shows that people are going to go into May with a pretty different mindset, uh, both the voters of the city and the members of the council that were responsible for putting this up there. They may realize that, well, maybe their political capital has been spent. They have gone too far and they've run out of the ability to, uh, exert their influence over policy and move it in the direction that they're wanting to. So I think on both ends, as far as uh, who's going to be running and as far as the voters go, it definitely changes the dynamics of the May election. Uh, really, the May election uh, is going to be, I think, defined by this election. A few other races I want to just highlight for anyone listening to this. Jay Johnson, the Republican, won the race for State Board of Education District 15 to replace Marty Rowley, who's leaving office. He beat former Amarillo Independent School District trustee John Betancourt with 78% of the vote. Scott Brumley also won re-election as Potter County Attorney, and Adela Thomas-Jackson won re-election in Precinct 4 in Potter County as constable there. 
the final race I want to highlight and have Jason check in on, because I know Jason was pretty involved in this race, is the race for the United States House of Representatives in District 13. Dr. Ronnie Jackson is the new congressman-elect for District 13. Jackson, the Republican, won 79.4% of the vote according to unofficial totals from the Texas Tribune, 216,000 votes, a little over that, to Democrat Gus Trujillo's 18% and Libertarian Jack B. Westbrook's 2.2%. Okay, Jason, Dr. Jackson is set to become the next congressman for the 13th district to replace Mac Thornberry. What is your initial reaction to that? I'm very excited for, I'm torn between calling the doctor and the admiral, but I am, I am very excited for our new representative Jackson. He's going to do a great job. And it was, it was a, a pleasure to work with him and support him. I was also really excited to be a part of that race. It was a great learning experience and it shows so many people getting involved and then Jack pulling 2% of the vote. It shows that regular people can stand up and get involved in politics and have a voice, even though we don't always win. Ronnie is going to do great. He is going to make us proud. I have no doubt. It is certainly interesting the way this whole election went, and I'm sure we're going to have Another conversation about this more as we get toward May, especially on the city issue, where we go from here as far as the city elections. Either way, it was a great conversation while it lasted. And gentlemen, we really do appreciate you coming on here with us. Anyone who's listening to this, you can go to AmarilloPioneer.com and you can see full election results. Before we go, before we go, I also want to just very quickly take a personal moment here and thank everyone who listened to all of our episodes during the election season. We really do appreciate that. And we want to thank all the candidates who came on. We had a lot of really good candidates who came on here and they visited with us. Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians. I don't think we had any Green Party candidates, but there were only a couple on the statewide ballot. So we had a lot of candidates who came on here and joined us and we really do appreciate that. And also I want to just thank our listeners for electing us as the runner-up for best podcast in the Amarillo Globe News Best of Amarillo Awards and Amarillo Pioneer <laughs> Production winning an award at the Globe News. We must be really, really good then. Uh, but <laughs> I, uh, I just want to thank everybody who voted for us and got us over the finish line on that to be a runner-up. There were other ones on there, and we just really do appreciate that. Either way, uh, we really do appreciate you and Noah, Jason, coming on here this evening. And we're going to have you guys back on very soon to talk about the May elections. And if anything pops up, you know, we'd love to have you on here again as a guest. There is an election we didn't talk about tonight. Oh, what's that? The Senate. Our Senator, John Cornyn, won. But for anyone who's been following the presidential race, no matter which side here on Trump or Biden, it's it's nail-bitingly close, as we talked about earlier. But you know what else is nail-bitingly close is the Senate races that are in Georgia that are going to decide which party maintains control of the Senate. Yes. They're... So if you need a break from Trump versus Biden and you don't want your blood pressure to go down, take a look at that race, folks. <laughs> Well, there's so many interesting Senate races all over the country like that. And people here in the Panhandle might know the name Tommy Tuberville, the head coach, Texas Oh, yeah, Tech he football. Was. Yep, he is, or I think he was, for a short period, the head coach for Texas Tech's football program. Uh, he won election to the United States Senate in Alabama as a Republican. So there you go. Well, gentlemen, we really do appreciate you coming on here this evening. And we will see you guys down the road.